Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you. If we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And, um, you know, if you want to introduce yourself to me afterwards, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to meet you, maybe get a chance to hear a little bit more of your story. We are finishing up our series today. We've been calling Weep With Me, The Lost Language of Lament. And uh, some of you are like, thank God we're finishing our series on lamentations. Like as some, someone from Jackson has said, six weeks is a long time to be sad, okay? But I think that um, for many of us, this has been a really fruitful exercise. It's been uh, cathartic for some of us. Some of us had need, needed permission to kind of step back from the situation and just say, you know, this is, this is really hard. Life, life can be really hard sometimes. We just needed permission to kind of say that, freedom. Um, we've talked about the fact that roughly a third of all the Psalms in the Bible, which we normally naturally think are praise and worship and adoration and all these positive things, roughly a third of the Psalms have an element of lament to them, where the, 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 the psalmist is saying, this is hard. And he's grieving, he's, he's actually even questioning God. We talked about the fact that Jesus, who was uh, the, the most fully human being in all of the, the definition of that word, uh, experienced the full range of human emotions while he was here on earth, including things like anger and grief and sorrow. Uh, at the, uh, the graveside of, of one of his Good friends, Jesus, Jesus actually weeps at this graveside. Now, he, he later raises him from the dead, so you know, that's kind of a good thing. If you're friends with the, the Son of God, you kind of got that going for you. That comes in handy every once in a while. You know? but, but that doesn't negate the fact that, that Jesus felt real sorrow and real grief and real pain. And we're going to look at one of those moments in the life of Jesus together. He's looking at one last lament over the city of Jerusalem. And this lament comes from none other than Jesus himself. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're going to find, you'll find that at page 743. And we're going to look at a very familiar story today, but we're maybe hopefully going to look at it from a little bit different perspective. Uh, does anybody know what day today is in the church calendar palm sunday okay good palm palm sunday what is what does palm sunday signify or what does it what does it mean yes okay jesus jesus rides or enters into jerusalem on on a donkey's colt now now funny enough that's the passage that we're going to look at this morning okay on palm sunday jesus entering into jerusalem but first, but first, have you ever had one of those moments where you look at a situation, maybe your situation, maybe another situation, and you look at it and you are just tempted to despair and give up hope and just say, this situation is so broken. This is so broken. This is not the way that it was supposed to be. And, and there, there really isn't much 
that you can do about it. Have you ever had a situation like that? We have some people in our congregation who work at the Washington County Courthouse, and they have this feeling regularly. It's, it's part of, of their life. Is they just see this, and they're like, this situation is so broken. How many of you read the news of the, the drunk driving accident in Kenosha last week? Three members of the same family killed instantly by a guy whose, whose alcohol, blood alcohol was three times legal in that. Okay? That's just, that's just broken. If you're a member of that family, you're just like, this is, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. Supposed to be. We have we have a person here who's part of our congregation, and she is actually a close relative of Jamie Kloss, the 13-year-old girl from Barron, Wisconsin, who saw her parents shot and killed before she herself was abducted and held captive for up to three months. Now, even though miraculously Jamie was found and freed, there are so many elements of that story where you were just tempted to give up in despair and shake your head and say, this situation... It's just so broken, and there's really not that much you can do about it. I mean, no amount of counseling or justice is going to bring her parents back or erase the trauma that she experienced. I had my own little experience like this when we were uh, missionaries in Russia. Quite, quite frankly, in, in Russia in the, um, in the 1990s, um, there weren't a lot of really good fathers at that time. There weren't a lot of dads that were emotionally engaged and involved in their kids' lives, spent time with their kids, encouraged their kids. And so that's what made Sasha really kind of a unique character, is that he really loved his son. Him and his wife, Olya, they were young parents in their late 20s. We befriended them, had them over for dinner a couple of times, even began to have faith conversations talking about Jesus. And... Um, and one thing that I noticed about Sasha right away is that he was a good dad. He loved his son. He took his son with him to work. He worked as an auto mechanic. He'd take his son with him and teach him things about cars and stuff like that. And, uh, and so even we started playing Christian music at his, at his auto shop, you know, which, you know, was really out of character. And, uh, and so I had high hopes, high hopes for Sasha, which is why I was so confused when I got a frantic phone call from a woman on my phone one day, just sobbing. Couldn't make out who it was. I'm like, who is this? She's like, it's Olya. And I'm like, I'm running through my head. I got, I know five different Olyas. And she's like, all she kept saying is, he's dead. He's dead, Mike. He's dead. Sasha had been killed in a drunk driving accident. And, uh, and, and I didn't weep i cried i bawled like god this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever like this is broken this is not the way that it's supposed to be a a young boy is not supposed to grow up with the trauma of having his good dad ripped out from from him you know girls are not meant to see their parents killed in front of them and then taken captive for 13 years when you have that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you're like, this is just wrong. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. That is the essence of lament. Lament is quite simply looking at your situation or looking at the world and you say, this is broken. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. 
which is why Lamentations is called the book of Lamentations, because the author, an Israelite, is looking back at the destruction of Israel and saying, this is, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. You know, people are supposed to live in security and safety, not in death and destruction. The Israelites are supposed to be a light to the nations of the world, not a cesspool of decadence and idolatry. This is, this is so wrong. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. And then Jesus comes on the scene 500 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem is rebuilt. Things aren't great, but at least they're back in their own land again. Okay, They're able to carry on life uh, as normal. They're ruled by the Roman Empire now, which is that's kind of a negative. Okay, But, uh, but, but there's a new temple in town. And it's, it's a pretty magnificent, magnificent you know, edifice as, as far as facilities go. Okay? And, uh, and so, so this is into this situation you know, that Jesus kind of enters in. Okay? And, and things are better than they were in 586. And, and, and Jesus kind of enters this context and has his own little lament, his own little cry over uh, the brokenness of the situation. But here's the one thing. And this is what makes Jesus altogether different from you and I in our lament. Jesus was able to grieve and lament over the brokenness of the situation while simultaneously committing to doing something about it. Okay? Jesus is the only person in all of history who on one hand could weep and lament over the brokenness of our world while simultaneously set about to do something about the brokenness in our world. The context for our narrative today is this. Jesus has been, for some now, sometime now, heading towards Jerusalem. Luke, as an author in his biography on the life of Jesus, has this as kind of a motif. Okay? He repeatedly talks about how Jesus is working his way towards Jerusalem. And now Jesus has finally arrived at Jerusalem, or he's kind of arrived on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's kind of like if Jesus was coming to West Bend, he kind of pauses and stops and parks in, in uh, Newburgh. Okay? And uh, so he's there in this little village called Bethany, and he sends in two disciples ahead of him to go grab this colt, this, this young donkey, bring it back, and he's going to ride it in to Jerusalem, okay? And so here he is, he's riding into Jerusalem on this young colt, and this has huge significance in the minds of his followers, okay? Because they see Jesus as their Messiah, and now Messiah is riding into Jerusalem, the epicenter of Jewish worship, okay? And it's, it's just a week before the, the tradition of Passover, okay? The festival of Passover. Passover is that time when they celebrate and remember Moses rescuing the, the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, and out of misery. And so there's huge significance to this event, okay? They're all pumped up. They're like, this is going down. Jesus is going to be made king, and we're going to be put back on top of the world, okay? Stuff like that. And you can just hear them. They're like, they're like we are the champions, my friends. And they're just going on. It's kind of like similar to the, the atmosphere of the, the RNC or the DNC when they have their big convention. They announce who their candidate's going to be. There's a lot of, a lot of hoopla and a lot of, a lot of celebration and a lot of, you know, kind of pomp and stuff like that. And in the midst of this background, Jesus does something really strange. Really strange. He begins to weep. 
Read with me in verse 41 of chapter 19. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment uh, against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you, to the, dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's interesting. Jesus weeps. And this is not just a little sniffle or a tear rolling down the side of his cheek or something like that. The term used here is strong. It's referring to a full-out sobbing or wailing. Jesus is emotionally wrecked. And what is he so wrecked about? Something about Jerusalem, that the days will come when she's surrounded by her enemies, hemmed in on every side. And then he goes into some really morbid detail about what's going to even happen to her children. And ultimately, not one stone's going to be left on top of one another. What's, what's, what's going on here? What Jesus is predicting and prophesying is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. Okay? And in 70 AD, and he sees it all right now in front of him. For him, this is in real time, clear as you and I can see the furniture in the room. He has this, and he has this profound lament. He just breaks down and weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. What the writer in the book of Lamentations did in hindsight by looking back at the destruction of Jerusalem and grieving over that and mourning and lamenting over their sin that caused the destruction and all the trauma and suffering, Jesus is looking going forward and he's saying, 40 years from now, after he dies on the cross, it's as if he can see the carnage, hear the screams, feel the pain of parents having to watch their children die. And what the, what the writer of Lamentations sees in the rearview mirror, Jesus sees through the windshield coming towards him. And it's as real to him as it's happening in real time. It's just as disturbing and just as upsetting, no matter what perspective you look at it. And he just breaks down, and he weeps. Andy Stanley, in his book Irresistible, chronicles this time in Jerusalem's history. He says, 40 years before, after Jesus made this disturbing prediction, the soon-to-be-elected emperor of Rome, Rome General Vespian, Ves, uh, Vespasian, got to get that one right, Vespasian, trapped thousands of Jewish rebels inside the city of Jerusalem. This was the culmination of a four-year campaign between Jewish rebels and the empire. Historians refer to this as the Jewish war or the Judean war. It was unimaginable when Jesus spoke of it, but as Vespasian's army literally surrounded Jerusalem and sealed both the rebel forces as well as the citizenry inside the city walls, city walls that would eventually become prison walls for the terrified citizens of Jerusalem. The siege went on for so long that by the time the Roman infantry poured through the breach, their pent-up anger made them merciless. Thousands of Jews were butchered. Jewish historian Josephus writes this, The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. 
men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. Jesus sees this all in real time, and he just weeps. Now, there are good reasons and profound theological significance to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I don't want to minimize any of that. But what I just want to realize right now is that all of those events Jesus could experience in real time, and he's just broken on over it. Have you ever had one of those moments when you're just so distraught, and you're like, this situation is just so broken. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Jesus had one of those moments. Jesus felt overwhelmed with emotion at the horrific vandalism and violence that we humans do to God's good world and to one another and the effects of sin upon the world. The only difference is that he is the one person in all of history who could on one hand lament and weep over the brokenness of our world while simultaneously deciding to do something significant and substantial about it. As I mentioned earlier, Luke in his biography in the life of Jesus makes a specific point to demonstrate how Jesus for some time now had been working his way towards Jerusalem. Way back in Luke chapter 9, it says this. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus made it his goal, his ambition to make it to Jerusalem. He set out for Jerusalem. I love the way that this verse is translated in some of the older translations. It says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Some of the older writers talk about Jesus setting his face like flint towards Jerusalem. I just love that phrase. Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. I have no idea what it means. I just love how it sounds. You know, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He he said he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He made that his goal. That's where he was going. Why why did he make it his ambition to go to Jerusalem? Jesus knew beyond the shadow of a doubt what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, if we can get that slide up there, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of God, the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus is so resolute about going. Why is Jesus so resolute about going to Jerusalem? Because he is the one person. In all of history, he could on one hand weep and lament over the brokenness in our world while simultaneously deciding to do something about it. He knew that if the human race was ever going to have a future of any kind without sin, without brokenness, without violence, and without the wickedness that we constantly perpetuate on one another, that evil and sin needed to be dealt with and dealt with decisively. And the only way in all the cosmos for sin to be dealt with was to have God himself come down from heaven, take on our humanity, step into our world, and give his sinless life in exchange for all of our lives. And that the righteous and just wrath of God the Father against sin and against evil would fall completely 
and fully on him. And then we, in turn, would receive Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sin. And then and only then can we enter into eternity, an eternity without sin and without all the effects of sin, without disease, without cancer, without violence, without addictions, without war, without sex trafficking, without broken families, and without death. Jesus is the only person in all of history who simultaneously can weep and lament over how broken our world is while at the same time resolutely setting out to do something about it. And so he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He never flinches. He never vacillates. He never hesitates to do what needed to do if the human race was ever going to have a future. It's interesting. After entering into Jerusalem, Jesus, in the week leading up to his crucifixion, he has kind of this showdown with the religious leaders of his day. If you read, you know, the, the last week of his life, you can see this high drama, okay, playing out. They kind of have this sparring match going on. And at one point, uh, one sect of the religious leaders, the, this group that doesn't believe in any kind of literal resurrection, comes to Jesus with, with kind of this spiritual um, theological catch-22, Okay, so they come to him with this question that they think they're so smart, they're going to trap him with and stuff like that. And so they're like, Jesus, Jesus. Okay, Jesus. They're like, got it. I've got a question for you. Okay, got a hypothetical here for you. Okay, in the law of Moses, it says this. It says that if a man gets married to a woman and then he dies without leaving her any children, then the next unmarried brother in that family is to marry this woman and give her children from his, from his brother. Okay? So, this is the situation, Jesus. There were seven brothers. Alright? Seven brothers. The first one marries this woman, and he dies, and there's no kids. Okay? So, the second brother then marries her, and then guess what? He dies, and there's still no kids. The third brother marries her, and the same thing happens to him. He dies, and there's no kids. And then there's a fourth brother, and then at this point you know it's a fictitious story because, you know, if it was a real story, the fourth brother would be like, I'm good. I, 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 I'll just be a bachelor the rest of my life. You know, I'm, I'm good. But, but they want to make their point, so they're going on. So finally, all seven brothers marry this woman, and not a single one of them have any kids. So at the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Boom! Yeah, drop the mic. Yeah, you know, they're, they're going back into their corners and they're high-fiving one another like, yeah! And then Jesus does this spiritual jujitsu on him. He's like, and he says, you know what? The people in this age, meaning here and now, marry and are given in marriage. But not the people of the age to come. Not those who are going to participate in the resurrection. And he says this. He says, in the resurrection from the dead, they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Is that not incredible to somebody here? 
Isn't it? He says, hey, look, those who participate in the resurrection from the dead, they can no longer die. If you were to look in my Bible, I have a big, huge yay with two explanation points after it written in the margin of my Bible. That's good news. That Jesus is saying, you know, I am going to Jerusalem. I am setting my face like flint to Jerusalem because I am going to go there and I am going to deal with sin decisively so that you can have a future where you can be children of the resurrection, where you can no longer die because you are God's children. Never die. Jesus is the only person in all of history, who could on one hand weep and lament over the brokenness of our world while simultaneously decide to actually do something about it. What's the worst thing in our understanding that can happen to a person or a family? Cancer? ALS? Having your kids die before you do? But it, it all goes back to death. Death is always considered an enemy in Scripture. It's the ultimate. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Because people weren't intended originally to die. They were designed by God to live forever. I have a good friend. He's my best friend from college. Scott and I went on mission trips together. We got baptized together. We stood up in each other's weddings. We held a prayer meeting in our house, in our, in our dorm room together and uh, there we are biking together look, look at that old guy next to scott huh? huh what you're taking a f- picture with your phone oh, what is going on there you know so scott and i are are great friends okay when my wife and i were missionaries in siberia we would come back on state assignment and we'd go down to scott and lisa's house and the two of them they'd let our kids play until they fell asleep at night and, uh, and then Scott and Lisa would pull up a chair and they'd say, tell us all about it. And they, we want to hear everything. And they would, they would minister to us in this really profound and significant way. Because work and life took Scott and Lisa to the Twin Cities, our contact with them became more sporadic and less consistent. But I'll never forget the day that I got an email from Scott that his youngest daughter, Kate, at age 13, was diagnosed with, diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Gosh darn, this is the third time I've done this and it doesn't get any easier. I kind of went into pastoral mode with Scott, asked him how we could pray for him and Lisa, encouraged him, encouraged him with the fact that we had had children here at Kettlebrook who have had leukemia and who they went through the process, they went through chemo and it was tough and it was brutal but they made it through and now they're cancer free and so um, I tried to encourage him with those words but that was not to be Kate's path and as you read through the subsequent Caring Bridge entries that are lovingly written by all the family members and they're all so articulate you follow this excruciating journey of a family desperately longing and wanting their daughter and their sister to survive. But complications and infections kept seeming to sabotage and get in the way of every step of progress. 
We follow them through hospital visits and chemo and bone marrow transplants and into the ICU and out of the ICU. And ultimately, you can just feel their pain when Kate passes. Scott wrote this a few weeks after Kate's passing. He says, people often ask us how we are doing. It's an impossible question to answer. How are we doing with work, with each other, with sorting through Kate's belongings? For now, our days can best be described as being full of raw, intense sorrow. I can't overstate the tears in our household. Each day brings new pain and new tears. We grieve for Kate's absence and for the things that will never be. We try to keep busy and occupied, but we think about Kate constantly. We have endless video replaying in our heads from the last moments, the last day, the last weekend, and the past five months. We are beginning to read a few books, talk with others who have experienced the loss of a child, and visit support groups. Hopefully, the combination of all these activities will begin the healing process, which in many ways feels as if it hasn't even started yet. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just look at a situation and you're like, this is just so broken. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Scott's had a few of those moments. And for me to come up to Scott and say to him, you know what, you'll get through this. That just isn't kind. I can say that to my kid who's throwing up, who's sick, and say, you know, you'll get better, you'll get over this. But you can't say that to someone who's lost a child. Okay? You don't get over something like that. But what you can do is you can take consolation in the fact knowing that there is a future in store for you where there is no more crying or sorrow or pain or death. Seeing the brokenness all around him and the pain that was to come, Jesus wept. He not only wept, but he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He turned his face towards Jerusalem and he didn't waver. He didn't hesitate. He didn't vacillate because Jesus is the one person in all of history who can simultaneously weep and lament over the brokenness of our world while doing something about it and deciding to destroy sin and death forever by his death on the cross. It's interesting, before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he's actually in Bethany, outside of, out of Jerusalem, and there he's there at the gravesite of his, of his good friend Lazarus. And, and he's just about to do this amazing, miraculous miracle where he raises Lazarus from the dead. But just before he does this amazing, miraculous miracle. He says something that I think is even more amazing and more miraculous. This is what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Will never die. He says, do you believe this? Jesus seems to indicate that there is a direct connection 
between how we respond to Jesus Christ and our ability and capacity to enter into eternal life and be children of the resurrection, like he says back in Luke. Children who will never die because they're children of God. And that if we would embrace him as Savior and God's final solution to our sin problem, and if we had bow the knee to Jesus as King, it doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter if we get ALS or cancer or leukemia or anything. Because Jesus says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. This is why during this whole series that we've been doing on Lamentations, we have been intentional and deliberate about the fact that every single week we have been celebrating communion. Because in the midst of our lament and grieving and getting in touch with the pain of the world, we do not want us to lose fact of the singular event in all of history where we actually have hope, where our future was secured because sin and evil and death had been dealt with and dealt with decisively at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to celebrate communion again today. And, and if you fit into this category where you believe in Jesus as the ultimate solution for our sin problem, and you are going to live forever, and you're going to live even though you may die, then we want to invite you to the table today. We don't care what church you come from. We don't care where you're from. If you believe in Jesus as the final solution to our sin problem, the only one who can give us eternal life, feel free to make your way up to one of the tables that we have scattered throughout the room. Grab the elements signifying Jesus' body and his blood. And we're all going to, once everyone's been served, we're going to take it all together. Okay. So let me just pray. Father God, in a room this size and in a group this size, I know there's got to be people who are, have experienced that feeling of this situation is so broken. And there's nothing I can do about it. Would you please come alongside them today? Remind them of the fact that you had a son who felt that way as well. Who looked at the situation around him and the pain that was to come and the brokenness of the world and said, the situation is so, so broken. But he was also the only person of all of history who could actually do something about it. And so he set his face towards Jerusalem, didn't hesitate, didn't vacillate, and went to the cross on our behalf to secure for us a future without sin, without death. Pray that you would meet us powerfully in the bread and in the cup as we take it together. We pray this in Jesus' name.